Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for June 2015. I'm sorry, did I say June? I meant June. I hope that pays off later. I am writer, hyphen critic, <laughs> hyphen, uh, rest in peace, James Horner, one of my favourite composers of all time, Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is... Hi there, guys. I'm uh, writer, hyphen director, hyphen... Paul Anthony Nelson. Whoa. And with us today is this month's very special guest. Hi, I'm Thomas Caldwell, film critic, hyphen, film programmer, hyphen, film educator, hyphen, author, hyphen, recurring, returning dream, hyphen, guy who modelled his entire behaviour and style on Special Agent Dale Cooper. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and justifiably so. I love the recurring dream motive because you are our first and possibly only ever return guest. This yeah. is a crazy honour. I'm really appreciative of this. Thank you. Well, it's been exactly five years and we thought, why not, why not celebrate the anniversary of uh, you were our very first guest and um, we will get to the reasons for your return <laughs> later on. But uh, yeah. yeah, we thought this would be a nice... Can I just say, I love being on the first episode. That, that, that also was a huge privilege and I had a really great time and I, I've listened back to that episode every now and then and I, I really enjoy it. Um, and I've listened to every single episode you've done since. Wow. I haven't missed any of them. Oh, thank and you. it's Fantastic. a great show congratulations on what you've achieved in five years it's a real honor to, to have to be invited back like this thank you sir we appreciate that and we knew someone has to have listened to all of them and now <laughs> we know who it was yeah. <laughs> that's that one listener a month <laughs> so speaking of uh things from the past coming back jurassic world oh yep. the uh the the blockbuster of the month um the blockbuster of all time did anybody see this coming that no. this would capture the imaginations and wallets of so many people around the world? Absolutely not. Like, the biggest opening weekend of all time, the quickest film to one billion worldwide, the quick, like, every single box office record, and by days. This is, this is strange. It feels like the Jurassic Park idea feels like it should be a franchise, because... For a start, the park itself in the film is a franchise, and it feels like an idea. Dinosaurs in the modern world, go. You can make 50 films out of that. But if there's one thing the sequels have made abundantly clear is that it should not be a franchise. <laughs> it was a one-off, because the first film, it's the wonder and majesty of yes. discovering these dinosaurs. You know, that first film was all couched in the majesty of discovery, and every subsequent film has been couched in the familiarity of repetition. <laughs> yeah. And so you lose the wonder, which is what made the first film so great, in part. And, yeah, I think, you know, just draw a line under it. Unless you go with my idea, which is basically Planet of the Apes with dinosaurs and the humans are killing off... The, I've got this whole thing planned out. But um, unless you go with something crazy like that, stop making Jurassic films. Well, I mean, it, it is a huge franchise. And, look, what I think is sort of admirable and interesting about Jurassic World is how self-aware it is that it's trying to build a new park for a jaded audience mm. and no one's going to be interested in dinosaurs anymore we have to have hybrid dinosaurs and there's lots of very knowing winks at the audience yeah. saying mm. that we know you want a bit more gore and spectacle and craziness and over the top that's what we're providing to the characters in the film that's what we're providing to you the audience and so far so good and it's set in a theme park as well and for the mm. first time we see crowds of punters coming mm. to see the dinosaurs and hell breaking loose and we actually see you know average people under threat in the theme park it just doesn't come together yeah you're right on paper it should work and it's so self-aware that it doesn't the film doesn't justify that, I think. It doesn't well, live up to that promise. I, I, I don't dislike this film. I quite enjoyed it. But I think this is a really forgettable, nothing sort of a film. You've nailed it for me. This feels like the studio's wet dream. And the fact that it's grossed the money that it's grossed 
backs up their point. Like, this is the film that the studios have spent the last 20 years of marketing research trying to create. The thing feels like it's built completely out of demographics. Mm. They've got this for the kids, they've got this for the adults, they've got this for the men, they've got this for the women, they've got this, and it all feels so mechanical, and there is no, there's no hint of a voice. Like, it, it, the first film you had, it was Spielberg having fun. It was Spielberg getting back to his Jaws groove. And, and you know, and it was the whole, you know, don't tinker with, don't play God and don't tinker with science. Whereas this is like the same point that's been made four times over. There's a slight kind of military comment thing, but even there you don't know where the film stands. Like, anything the film comments on, there's something immediately afterwards to contradict it. Mm. And it's, it's this point that it's just this Frankenstein of statistics. And in the end, it just, there's nothing to grab onto. It's such an, a, almost a profoundly empty experience. Yeah, well, there's a whole bunch of ideas in there that don't get followed through. I mean, the, the, when they bring the mercenaries in, there's a shot of one of them, a bunch of them in the helicopter, and they shoot one of the dinosaurs as a kind of thrill kill. Mm. And it's meant to evoke images of the Vietnam War. It's, mm. that, it's a very deliberate reference, and that goes absolutely nowhere. Every line hints at something from a previous draft of the script, mm. which was wrung out in the process. I believe there were many, many, many writers too, I believe. Yeah, but you like shouldn't it. be able to tell that from watching the film. Like, yeah. I didn't know no. there were that many writers, and just watching the film... You can tell. I could, you, you're like, yeah, this is fifth, draft 50. I will, I will credit that I don't think this film is going to fall into obscurity the way, say, Jurassic Park 3 has, love it or hate it, because... This film has iconic images which have been pushed through the... As, as much as it's copied the first film, there are a couple of moments. People are going to refer to this film as uh, the thing coming out of the water, Tweak the Shark, mm. and Chris Pratt on a motorcycle riding the yeah. rappers. And, that's, and all, the, all you need are those iconic images and it's going to stick in people's heads, I think. I did love letting out the T-Rex like Hannibal Lecter towards the end of the movie. Yeah. Well, that's the moment that I think is really interesting because even though I didn't really love that sequence... I love that there was at least an idea there, yeah. the new thing with the T-Rex and the Raptor, which I think is such a post-Avengers team-up idea. <laughs> Honestly, that's where that's yeah. coming from. You would never have got that ten years ago. But I do have a theory about this franchise I wanted to run by you, because it occurred to me when I was thinking back over the films, they're, very, you know, they're always kids in these films. In the first film, there are two kids and their parents nowhere to be seen. In the second film, there's a kid and... You know, she's got a single father looking after her. In the third film, there's a divorced couple trying to find their kid. In the fourth film, two kids whose parents are in the process of getting a divorce. It feels like we're, through this franchise, we're incrementally moving towards the nuclear family. <laughs> it's taking forever to get there. So the next one will be Jurassic Brady Bunch World. That's yeah. it, yeah. Looking forward to that. Moving over to uh, a film that we, I would think, uh, we probably collectively like a bit more. Maybe I'm uh, getting ahead of myself. Inside Out, the new Pixar film from director Pete Docter, who did uh, Up, Up and, and Monsters, and Monsters Inc. Inc. Yes. And they're, they're the really early days of Pixar, too. He, he actually mm. helped develop the original Toy Story. He's, been, he's one of these guys who's been there from not the very, very beginning, but close to the very beginning. Mm. I am totally in love with this film. I think it's possibly the funniest and most imaginative film in the canon. And also the most important, if, if kids' films are ultimately about helping them deal with life then this is one of the most important sort of life lesson films. I think, you know, it's, it's not about a pat happy ending or learning to not be sad. It's about the tapestry of life and sadness can coexist with happiness. Yeah. And it's such, it's an incredible film. This was a glorious experience. <clears throat> um, I, you know, Pixar had this amazing run of Ratatouille, then was it Wally, then up in Toy Story 3? Have I got yeah, the order I think right? So, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Toy Story 3 and Wally in particular are two of my favourite. I mean, I think these are two of the best animated features, full stop. Yeah. Glorious films. And then the come down with the cast too was, was horrific. I was very underwhelmed by Brave. Monsters University was very disposable. I had kind of written off Pixar. I thought, mm. well, they've peaked. They're, they're done. And Inside Out is very much on par with those other classics. Um, this is as good as it gets, not just with animation storytelling, but storytelling full stop. This is such a sophisticated film, the way it physicalises the space of the mind and concepts like abstract thought and mm. how emotions work, how memories are formed, why we get those annoying recurring images or jingles in our head. Uh, I don't want to give away too many of the gags because seeing the way the film deals with various functions of the mind is part of the pleasure. So it's sophisticated in that sense, but it's just really good storytelling. And in the best Pixar tradition, there's no random throwaway gags. Every joke has some, some kind of inbuilt purpose, whether it's set up for something later on or whether there's been a setup and then we get the payoff much, much later. And yeah, sublimely beautiful in both the look of the film and the emotional resonance. I mean... The mystery, it's not a mystery-driven film, but the mystery it does set up at the start is what is the purpose of sadness? Why on earth do we feel mm. sad? What is the point of that? And by the end of the film, you're convinced by it what the purpose of sadness is and how to value and, in fact, embrace sadness. And by this point, you're also a blubbering mess and <laughs> trying your best not to cry in front of the whole cinema who are also busy, busily crying. So yep. It's so <laughs> beautiful and moving. How exhilarating is it to see... Pixar capture their form, become the studio that we all fell in love with in the mm. first place. It's been so long since I felt like this. This is my favourite since... I, I agree with you, that four-film period was possibly their peak, but I, I think this is my favourite since The Incredibles. I think it's that. Mm. Oh, I mean, another it's, amazing film, yeah. Yeah, everything you guys said, bang on. The voice casting is perfect. Yes. I mean, Phyllis Smith from The Office as Sadness. She's I'm my no. MVP. My, like, yeah. in, in, a, in a film full, filled with perfect casting. Yeah. She's my favourite. Polaris Joy. Genius. Like, this... Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's perfect. And I've always been slightly critical of Up. I've always felt Up slightly overrated. Because for me, Up peaks way too early. It destroys you in the first 20 minutes. And the rest of the story... It's sort of a little bit forgettable. Like, it's really kind of silly and, and it's fun, but it's not nearly up to this. Everyone, all that everyone talks about is that first 20 minutes. And it's like Pete Doctor got it and like, oh, yeah, this works better if I just turn it upside down, doesn't it? <laughs> and I just put the crushing earning at the end. And my, I was clenching my teeth to not ball my eyes out yeah, in front so. of my <laughs> film critics. I must have, like, it's so beautiful and, and yeah, rooted, rooted in universal I experience and and, it, and the film does take its time to kind of find its feet and get it all together, but once it does, everything just locks in with that surgical precision of storytelling that Pixar were once renowned for. Mm. And finally for this month, uh, Far From the Madding Crowd, a film which I was uh, a little reluctant to go see at first because it did sort of feel like the latest in a checklist of classics that need to be uh, adapted. Like, we've, you know, it sort of feels like, you know, when the BBC would go through all the Jane Austens <laughs> or all the Shakespeare's, it kind of feels like Hollywood's doing that at the moment. But what sucked me in was the fact that it's Thomas Vinterberg who made The Hunt. And, uh, yeah, this I thought this film was, was stunning. I think the cinematography and music are beautiful, but also I, I haven't read the original, so I don't really know how they adapted it, but it feels really, I don't want to say uh, relevant or modern, because that's a weird thing to, to, to describe this film as, but it feels like it should have been made now. 
I think relevant and modern are two very good words to use yep. for this. I'm glad you liked it because I, I pushed for this one. Mm. <laughs> Having been a Thomas Hardy fan when I was at school and I had a teacher introduce me to Tess of the Durbervilles and I'm now reading, I am now reading Far From the Madden Crowd and look, the film in terms of the adaptation does what I think a good adaptation does which is it condenses and chops stuff out and mm. combines stuff when necessary to make it work as a film. You know, I'm one of these people who I couldn't give a stuff about fidelity to source material. It's Does it capture the essence? Does it make it work as mm. a film? And it really does. And, yeah, and my attraction to this was also, I, I tend to roll my eyes a little bit at all the classics when they get adapted as well, but mm. we've had some really good ones lately, actually, with good, interesting directors. Yes. Uh, uh, Kerry Fukunaga's Jane Eyre, Andrea Arnold's Wuthering Heights. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're, they're, they're probably the two best ones to compare yeah. it to, yeah. And they've all got this. I think, like those two films, this one has a really sort of... I don't know, authentic, almost modernist approach, which sort of says if this classic tale had been had actually happened in that time period, here's how it would have looked. And I feel like it's it's this sort of documentarian look at these classic works, which is a really interesting take we've never seen before. Well, it's, it's, it's weird watching a film like this with a handheld camera. I mean, I think that's mm. one of the small techniques Winterberg does to make it feel quite modern and vibrant. It's not intrusive, but you're aware that this is being filmed handheld with probably an HD camera, it's looking like. Yeah. But I think he does tease out the modern elements of the source material. I mean, Hardy, I think was quite progressive with the way he wrote female characters. He often wrote about women who were condemned by society for, for things way out of their control. He looked at the double standards about men and women. He, he liked strong female characters. Mm. And and this character in at the centre of the Maddening Crowd is a very strong character. You know, she, she's, she's independent both in her business practices and in her love life. Oh, and this is the other reason I was drawn to the goddamn film. It starred Carrie Mulligan. I mean, yes. hello. I'm just going to be completely brute now and just say <laughs> I'll see anything she's in because she's gorgeous and I love her. Um, Seconded. Oh, and, and I think this is possibly even better, the best she's done yet. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, you read all the, I read all this prose in the novel about what she's thinking and about the surging emotions inside her. And in the film, Carrie Mulligan nails it in two seconds just mm. with her body language or her facial expression. I, I love the unresolved sexual tension in this film as well. I mean, it's kind of a sexy film. And it's genuinely romantic as well. I do describe myself as a sentimentalist and a romanticist, but I, I do get irritated by most things that try to sell itself as romantic. Yeah. I was really sold by this, the, the kind of... Yeah, the the, the the unresolved sexual tension in this. I was even kind of quite charmed by the almost bromance between some of the male characters. Yes. Because she has these three suitors, and two of them are really decent men mm. who genuinely want what is best for her. And there's some nice scenes between them when they talk about their mutual admiration and how they respect each other for also yeah. wanting the best for her. And I thought, oh, wow, are these guys going to kiss? Yeah, <laughs> yes. And it was kind of lovely. Yeah. Um, and look, and even the third suitor, who is not so nice a character, we even get a sense of his tragic backstory. I mean, he's mm. not a, th a two-dimensional villain. There's quite a sad story to him as well. Yeah. Uh, look, I loved it. Loved the look of the film. Uh, the, the beautiful lighting in this. Lots of backlighting. So you've got lots of characters being shimmering and larger than life. Lots of shooting at dusk and dawn, as every filmmaker will know. That's the way to make everything look gorgeous. <laughs> but look, why not? It works. Yeah. 
and yeah, look, just uh, th- that's a classic story about a woman having to choose between three men who each have a characteristic she is drawn to. I mean, this is where it gets a little bit old-fashioned, this idea that nobody's the complete package. Mm. So she's drawn to one guy because she likes him, so that's the heart. She's drawn to one guy because she respects him, that's the brain. And then one guy, her ovaries, just want to explode all over him. So <laughs> she, she, it's just the wild, untapped desire. And it's trying to reconcile these three things. There and, should be an inside-out for this film, like the three parts of her desire <laughs> controlling. That's what we Far from the inside-out crowd. <laughs> yeah. Inside out of the Madden crowd. <laughs> there it is. Hollywood Put a dinosaur in there and we just complete the trilogy. <laughs> For our middle segment this month, we return to Jurassic World, which brought up a little bit of an issue regarding the way characters are killed in films. There is a certain character, I won't spoil who, who seems to get killed in a very protracted, hardcore borderline disturbing kind of way without seemingly doing very much to earn such a death and it got us thinking what is there a cinematic god is there is there a concept of you know we've all been weaned on this concept that there's some sort of morality behind a character that gets killed in every film and obviously cinematic god is the writer really but is there like there's usually this over overarching uh, a moral compass in terms of, you know, characters are either bad, die either because they're evil or they die heroically as a martyr, or they're, they're killed randomly to show, you know, in a saving private Ryan sort of sense that in, in the randomness of this mm. horrific war, you know, any life can be lost. But this death didn't fit into any of these categories. And a lot of viewers found it really troubling. And I'm just wondering, yeah, what is... Is this is this a key to- storytelling concept? Is this a well? I certainly like post Jurassic Park. I think the weirdest thing about standing out in the foyer talking to everyone was a hearing people say, "Did she deserve? She didn't deserve to die like that." And thinking, "What a strange concept!" And b agreeing with them because I felt really disturbed by that scene. Mm. But the reasoning sounded really weird, and I think that you know, in a sense, we're we're caught up in the scream idea, that postmodern idea of people die if they break this rule, if they break that rule, and she hadn't broken any, and no one was affected by her death, and it was shown, it, you know, we were following her throughout the whole thing, and she goes underwater and comes back up, and, you know, I know you were trying not to spoil it, but I'm describing it in pretty graphic detail, yeah. so, yeah. And so um, she, so they know it, yeah. Everybody's probably. seen this yeah, film, everybody. <laughs> you've seen the figures. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a very strange idea, and I think it comes down to the idea of morality in film, and I think it's not because we expect it. It's because Hollywood films flaunt that morality. And when a Hollywood film bucks the trend, it's either being willfully rebellious or it's just misjudged its own tone. Mm. And I think because the rest of the film isn't being rebellious, it's just this one scene that stands out. It's like, oh, you didn't, you didn't think every beat of this thing through. You just wanted to show this gleeful death. Remind everyone that the dinosaur is in the, is in the water. Mm. So, you know... It'll, that'll pay off later. Perhaps it's the earlier draft syndrome that you were talking about. Maybe there was a draft where the deaths were a lot more random and a lot more Maybe she horrific. was meaner. Maybe yeah. she was meaner, you know? I think it's the possible explanation. It really stood out for me as well, this scene. Mm. I remember watching it just 
I think I scribbled in my notebook at the time, randomly sadistic and drawn out and excessive. <laughs> yes. I mean, I wasn't, yes. yeah, I wasn't yeah. personally affronted by it, but I did think mm. this is really misjudged. I think it's more misjudged, which is one of the two possibilities you mentioned there, Lee. Uh, it felt, and it really stood out. It was a really jarring, over-the-top death. Now, you compare it to the death in the first Jurassic Park, where you've got, he's a lawyer, isn't he? He's sort of an obnoxious lawyer yeah. who abandons the kids. Mm. So he's so clearly presented as a wrongdoer. And mm. then we get the very comedic sequence of him getting eaten on the toilet. Yeah. Boy, in the wrong context, that sentence could have sounded really wrong. <laughs> um, but when the big T-Rex comes out and chomps him, and it's very funny because the film is set up, he's a wrongdoer mm. and this is the payoff and we as the audience are complicit in that and we really enjoy it and have a big laugh. Where in Jurassic World, this character was so kind of benign. She, and the she, kids she abandoned her. Developed. Mm. Yeah, she didn't really do anything that... No. Uh, there was no reason to dislike her. In fact, I kind of felt sorry for her as yeah. this kind of put-upon assistant. And there were no deaths that were comparable to that. I mean, if every single death in the film was over the top and excessive, as you might get in a slasher film, then that's the idea. That's the style of the film. If the deaths were random, like your Saving Private Ryan is a good example, mm. well, I always think of Sam Fuller's The Big Red One, where part of the point of that film is this whole huge ensemble of incidental characters get killed off within a few seconds of being introduced. So only the core members of that platoon survive the film. And that was making a point that war is hell and people are constantly dying. Yeah. And any any kind of person you meet and relationship you form is going to be shattered within seconds. Mm. Yeah. This just felt so out of place. And I think it did just screw up. I think it felt yeah. like a big mistake. It felt like an oversight. Because in, in film, we have, you know, identification representation issues. Certain characters and institutions take on, you might want to call it ideology, you might want to call it themes or ideas, but they represent things. And I think there is a sort of cinematic god that decides that that works in a different way to real life. I mean, in real life, we probably don't want to see all the villains getting punished through death via Tyrannosaurus Rex. I mean, I know there's some people who are big on the death penalty they're nutters, sure. <laughs> but in real life, you know, we don't want to see the villains constantly getting gunned down. But in a film world, it's very satisfying to mm. see them getting gunned down, mm. falling off buildings, etc. Because certain values have been put onto those characters and therefore they have to be resolved in a certain way. This moment in Jurassic World was just completely devoid of meaning. So, it, mm. yeah, it stood out. It's just weirdly, unnecessarily... Sadistic. I think that the, the, the tonal point's an important one. It, it, it just so doesn't feel like it belongs in this film. Otherwise, a, very, a fairly benign film. I mean, the other characters who die in it, there's either a sense of kind of ironic tragedy or it's a bit gleeful because they're villains, or it's just kind of incidental people and it kind of happens in, in the background. Hmm. It's sort of this general kind of montage of, of, of chaos that's mm. happening. I quite like the fact, actually, that Jurassic World did sort of show us that people are dying here on en masse. It's not mm. like, say, a lot of the superhero franchises where mm. they really have to go out of their way to say, mass carnage, but don't worry, no one died. But, yeah, mm. for this one character to get this really long, protracted death mm. was just tonally so out of sync with everything well, else. The more I think about it, the more I feel like it's different draft. Syndrome. I feel yeah. like it that has to, she, she had to be a more developed character draft. originally. Yeah. yeah, but how a film as micromanaged as this? How did this get through preview screening? Like, how did this get th 
through testing. Psychopathic uh, executives, I don't know. Yeah, psychopathic mall audiences as well. Well, just not caring, just going, people will laugh, it'll be a moment, they'll talk about it, we don't care. I mean, I've got this feeling, (laughs) I I get increasingly cynical about some of these franchises, especially, yeah, the the, the sequels, that's what franchises are. Um, (laughs) I don't think they actually care whether the film's any good or not. They care whether they get enough bums on seats in the opening Mm. weekend. So they're more interested in the marketing campaign. They're Mm. more interested in getting people into the cinema than making a good film. Yeah. So, Thomas, please tell us whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. I've been waiting five <laughs> years to say, not Tim Burton, but David Lynch. Yes, yes it finally happened. I got it right this time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it has been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah. Look, Lynch is a director I really latched on to, I suppose, in my later teenage years and then all throughout my 20s. When I was studying film, I became completely obsessed with the films of David Lynch. I mean, a few other directors, of course, but Lynch was really, really the big one. The linchpin, if you will. He, he was a linchpin, very good. And I'm, I'm sort of very much aware now that's not exactly unique. He is a director who I think really attracts a lot of cinephiles. And I think it's because he makes very bold, very unique, imaginative films that actually are quite accessible in their own way as well. So there are many of us out there who adore Lynch. I can't believe he's still available to me after all this time. I'm so glad to have had him because he was very important to me. But what I'm trying to say is he's important to a lot of people. So I'm not going to get too possessive and say he's just my guy. I'm going to share him. I mean, a funny anecdote is I I lived in uh, in France for a year and I remember I, in fr- France has a very cinephile community and society. The way we talk about football is the way they talk about film. Mm. And somebody asked me there when they found out I was into cinema, ah, so what filmmakers do you like? And I said, oh, I think my two favourites are Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. And I was used to getting kind of puzzled looks in Australia when I would say those names. In France, the response was, uh, yes, but everybody loves them. Can you pick somebody interesting, please? <laughs> it was like saying, yeah, I love the Beatles. Yeah, it's, a bit, it's a bit like that. But look, look, Lynch. Look, So I, I had a bad start with him when I saw June at a very, very young age, wanting to see another Star Wars-type film and being completely traumatised. But I think it must have been my final year at school. I got the series of Twin Peaks on VHS and watched them maybe two or three times. The giant box set with the lettering Huge along the spines. I I bought that box set second hand once for $300. Whoa! That was back in the day when that's what you had to do. But then I just fell in love. Um, Watched as many of his films on VHS mostly that I hadn't seen before. And then I was studying at university when Lost Highway came out. That was the first time I'd seen one of his films in the cinema. I was obsessively essay writing about Lynch at the time, and my essay on Lost Highway ended up getting published in a fairly reputable academic journal. It's still the best thing I've ever written, but I don't understand a word of it now because I was in hardcore academic mode at the time. But, yeah, I'm something of a fan. And doing this rewatch for this episode is the first time I think I've watched them all in a long time back-to-back with more my critical, slightly distanced hat on rather than my fanboy hat. So my opinion about some of his films have slightly shifted ever so slightly. It was a really interesting experience. Mm. I, I have to say I, I do share your possessiveness of, yeah. of Lynch because there are three films that I, I sort of mark as the ones that change me. And we've covered the other two, you know, Shawshank, it's a cliche now, but at the time no one had heard of it, and um, The Limey. And, but Lost Highway, even more than those two. Lost Highway for you as well. Yeah, yeah. it was actually... Yeah. Like, no kidding, the way that, you know, uh, Christians have AD and BC, 
I have before Lost Highway and after Lost Highway. And I'm not exaggerating. That was like a turning point for me in so many ways. I didn't know. It was like if you've ne- if you've only lived in daylight and then it goes night for the first time. You're like, I-, I have no frame of reference for this. What the hell is going on? I there were things in that film that I didn't know were possible, and I almost literally did not sleep for three days. Like I just I just took the next day off school because I was you know in high school at the time, and I just did nothing else mattered to me at the time because I was so changed that I was just walking around in this daze for days as I tried to come to terms with what I'd seen. So yeah, Lost Highway changed my life. But yeah, no, he's uh, he's one of my favourites as well. So. And it's one of those things, I've had this curious relationship with Lynch because I fell in love with a couple of his films early on. Um, I remember seeing Blue Velvet, I think when I was like 18 or 19, it was just... I just adored it, and episodes of Twin Peaks, and I remember really loving that first season. But then I had experiences, like, I hated Eraserhead when I saw it at 18. I hated... Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me when I saw it at 18. I didn't really get into Wild at Heart or Lost, uh, Lost Highway when I first saw them. And this is gradual, but I always liked him. And I always there was always something about his films that I would always go and see the new one. I hated Inland Empire when I first saw it at, at MIF. And yet each time I would see his films again, I'd get so much more out of them. Mm. And I think age has helped in that regard too. I think age and maturity, there's a lot of stuff I loved when I was 18 that I have no time for now, like most of us. But I've gotten to the point now, particularly starting for this podcast, I've become a born-again <laughs> Lynch fan in that way that born-again Christians are, you know, kind of annoying about it. And we're we're Christians a lot so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, and my relationship to his films has changed, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think as a, sort of, as a, as a man, and I specifically say man when he was sort of in his early 20s, mm. there's a lot in Lynch to love and get excited by and to enjoy the trans aggressiveness and mm. the sexiness of it all. But sort of now re-watching them again, I, I have evaluated them on quite a different set of uh, terms, I suppose, yeah, yeah. and have re-fallen in love with most of them again, but for different reasons. Yeah. Although still tapping into some of that joy I got when I first encountered them, which was a real buzz. I think it's the, the transgressiveness that, I, that attracted me to him early. Yeah. But now it's more about this world he creates. Mm. And it's just so unlike anyone else. And as we'll get into, everything he touches, whether it's a feature film or a commercial or an instructional video or whatever, it all is also uniquely him. Everything he touches just is 100% Lynch. And that's the thing I personally love about him is that everything is on his terms. He is a pure auteurist. Absolutely. One of the things that's interesting about his stuff is that he deals with this almost Lovecraftian cosmic horror. There's something like he's not... I don't think he's a horror filmmaker, and I don't think any of his films really fit in, mm. you know, neatly or even vaguely into the horror genre. But he's always, you know, Twin Peaks is a soap opera. That's terrifying. Blue Velvet is a film noir. That's terrifying. A Razorhead is a domestic drama. That's terrifying. He, he taps into something, and I think with the, with the mystery man in Lost Highway that just filled me with terror every time he was on screen. Like, I, you know, just earth-shaking terror. And it took me at least a decade to figure out that he's not a bad guy. The, yeah. the, the mystery man. I, I just had this moment where I went, oh, hang on. He doesn't do anything bad in the film. He's like a guardian angel. Yeah. Whereas the Lynch version he's of a right guardian... wrong. Oh, you've got a different reading to me. Oh, oh, we'll, get to that. we'll get to that. But I thought, <laughs> but I thought the, you know, if he is the guardian angel, then everything beyond our comprehension is terrifying, whether it's good or bad. Lynch taps into this Jungian idea of the shadow, you know, the, 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 the mirror self. Yes. The, the sort of the evil version of the self. And, and even beyond that, Lynch likes to physicalise... 
emotions and desires and thoughts. So his films do play out on kind of a dreamscape. I know people often use the word surrealism. They throw it around a bit casually, and some people get very upset. But I do think Lynch is a surrealist filmmaker because he employs a dream logic. He gets back to his very key idea about the way dreams do function, and that is, you know, ideas, emotions, thoughts are personified and they interact with the core subject, which is, you know, mm. the self, you, the, the, the viewer. And that's what so many of his films do. And what I've always loved about him, what's really drawn him to me, is the incredible emotional intensity he generates. I've always said you're never going to get a literal reality from a Lynch film, but you get an emotional reality. Mm. And I think that's the core of what I fell in love with him in the first place, which is I felt something so true and primal to my very, very core. It wasn't like watching so many other films, which I enjoy. You know, I laugh at certain things in cinema, or I'm scared of the monster, or... Or, you know, I fall in love with Carrie Mulligan. But with, <laughs> with, um, with Lynch, it is tapping into to feelings that I've never been able to explain or sometimes even were conscious of having, and that's the genius of what he does. He's got a direct line to the subconscious yep. and a direct line to the uncanny. I'll briefly just say, of all the short, the early works he did, where he was making that transition from visual artist to filmmaker, the really key one, I think, is The Grandmother, which is sort of a prototype for a razorhead. Mm. See, I love that. It is, but The Alphabet is my favourite. Well, The that Alphabet is great the because it's... Get out of me. Yeah, and it shows his, uh, his, his talent as an animator as well. Yeah. But both have, both are working on childlike anxieties, mm. and that's very big in his artwork as well, these fears of a child, and often they're domestic fears. This is a big theme for Lynch as well. There's something wrong within my home, yeah. within my house. The family unit is not safe. There is a twisted shadow across my house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. I think that's the name of my thesis, believe it or not. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's one of his paintings. Yeah, it's shadow of a yeah. twisted hand across my yeah. house. Even though Lynch has a lot of love and respect for family, which we get in some of the later films, he also lo locates it as a place of, of danger for, for children. And the grandmother has this idea of representing childbirth and parenting as a kind of blend of the mechanical and the organic. You know, literally people being grown. Mm. Um, and maybe, again, this is the appeal of Lynch to so many people. It's so rife with symbolism. I mean, he doesn't want to explain any of it and says it's all kind of automatic filmmaking. It has no yeah. meaning. But I think part of the joy of Lynch is the decoding. And I think it's quite easy to decode. I think mm. he gives you all the clues. But, yeah, look, A Razorhead being the first feature film is one of the most astonishing debuts ever. This is the film that did change my life. Yeah, right. And if I had to do one of those castaway things, you know, where you've got to yep. pick five films to be stuck on a desert island with, a Razorhead would be one of wow. them. And revisiting it reminded me of what I loved about it. It feels like a dream. I don't think yeah. any film has come as close to this as feeling like a dream. And when I say dream, I mean terrifying nightmare. <laughs> but it's not without its humour or yeah. poignancy. Hmm. And I, I've, this is the first time I've ever done this, but... As a parent, oh, yeah. as a parent, uh, watching a Razorhead took on a slightly different meaning. Yeah, because it really did capture that anxiety and kind of resentment at having this small, screaming, insatiable thing in your home that's utterly dependent on you. Yeah, and it's yes, and there's something monstrous about it as well because of its neediness. Mm. Oh, I'm not going to go any further than that because otherwise, my parenting experience has been quite good and hasn't really come anything close <laughs> to what poor Henry suffers. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, it's terrifying to know that a Razorhead was inspired by Lynch's own experiences as a young father mm. uh, and also the violence of the world he witnessed in Philadelphia. Well, mm. as someone who has sworn off having kids, it appeals to me in that, <laughs> that whole anxiety and the whole, a lot of, you know, fears 
that I have about parenthood as well as, you know, and, and reasons why... It gets why better. I, it gets better. Yeah, I'm sure it does. <laughs> but um, and what you were saying about the comedy as well is, is really interesting because it is funny at times. There are times when Henry looks like a silent film comedian. There's times mm. when he's kind of... Very trump- Howard Lloyd, isn't he? Yes, mm. exactly the person I was thinking of. Like, trumping through the, you know, industrial wasteland towards home with the big hair and his hair bound in the suit. And it's like, he looks like something out of a 1920s silent comedy. It's like, where did... Like, you just look at this film and go, how does someone come up with this? Like, where does this mm. come from? In terms of unique film debuts, I think has never been exceeded or surpassed or precedented. It's... Mm. Yeah, look, even by Lynch. Um, but look, so many key Lynch ideas are introduced in this film, and and the big one I think is a slight self disgust or fear or anxiety over mm. male sexuality and what mm. men are capable of doing. Um, you know, the reading I really love of Razorhead is that is in an inverse world. So there's no life in this world. There's just death, and death and life have become inverted. You know, life is created through pulling gigantic levers. It's all quite mechanical. This baby is this death-like creature, and there's this brilliant article, which I wish I could remember the name of it now, but it basically said the way to interpret the baby is it's Henry's angry, deformed, grotesque penis that's dominated his <laughs> life. And it has, because, you know, it's his dick that got him into trouble. Yeah. And this, this, this insatiable penis that just demands and demands but's also destroying the women around him, either making them leave him or, or, or frightening them, and they're destroying mm. his life. And so the kind of angelic figure in this film, the lady in the radiator, is this abortion angel <laughs> who in the fantasy sequences steps on all the fetuses. Oh. And when Henry's world is finally obliterated, he's in this kind of death-like heaven with her, freed from the baby slash penis. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Goodbye, penis. Um... It, that's yeah. Um, there's some psychoanalysis. There's for some you. psychoanalysis. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting. That he sort of goes from there to like Elephant Man and and Dune. You know, projects that are really instigated by other people. And it's like they're trying to figure out what to do with him. And he's sort of trying to figure out what to do with himself as well. And I kind of, you know, we'll come back to those films, of course, but I kind of consider Blue Velvet to be as much a debut as a Razorhead because it's him sort of recalibrating and going, actually, this is the type of filmmaker I am. Yeah. And this is what I'm doing going forward. It's very much Lynch distilled. Like, I can see definite DNA between a Razorhead and Elephant Man, and not only in its visual look, but mm. that sort of, you know, notions of deformity and notions yeah. of, of the, you know, the industrial and its mm. impact on society. And and he was very attracted to the Elephant Man, too. He's, he famously was looking for scripts and just heard the title and went, that's the one I want to do, Elephant Man, not knowing anything about it or what it was about. It's just like, Elephant Man, that's what I'm connecting with. And... and and so I think that is is very personal in a lot of ways, whereas Dune is kind of like, it's just something I should do. If yeah. I'm going to go to the next level, I should, you know, people are, like he was famously offered Return of the Jedi. Mm. That didn't pan out. And, and then there was Dune. But yeah, Blue Velvet is very much, it, it has a feeling of Lynch distilled, doesn't mm. it? Like the, the, the aesthetic we know of him now, this whole sort of, you know, what's underneath normal, polite society. And it is... It, it very much conforms to a sort of film noir structure. Like, it's the least kind of surreal mm. of of his films from sort of here on in. It's a very interesting progression from Razorhead to Blue Velvet. Mm. The one thing worth mentioning, though, is I think what he does in Elephant Man is truly remarkable. That industrial setting is so horrifying in Razorhead. In The Elephant Man, it is heartbreakingly beautiful. Mm. That is one of the most mm. empathetic 
gorgeous films ever. I mean, I, I yeah. cannot watch The Elephant Man without tearing up. Yeah, it, it, yeah I did the other moments. night. I, was, I yeah. was in tears throughout. That's the thing that I keep forgetting. When you think about Lynch, there are a lot of things you think about, uh, like the, the weird worlds he creates, mm. the terrifying characters. And I keep forgetting how good he is with character and with actors. Like from Elephant Man to, you know, the famous audition scene in Mulholland Drive, when you strip away all of his, I don't want to say tricks, but all of the aesthetics we think of with Lynch, and you just get down to human beings on camera, he's so great at that as well. And, and deft yeah. hand with emotion mm. as well. Like you look at the straight story, like in anyone yeah. else's hands, the straight story would be a lifetime movie. Yeah. It'd be so fucking mawkish and really awkward. And with him, he's just got this, it's so big hearted. There's just this love for Americana and for but this a genuine guy. genuine love for that Midwest, those yes, characters yeah. and the way they talk and the way they move. I and mean, the time they take. Yeah, when the straight story came out, a lot of people sort of dismissed it or said this is some eccentric, weird thing for Lynch to do and this is nothing like anything he's ever done before. And I used to think, well, no, go back, look at The Elephant Man, look at the episodes between Peaks he directs, where there is some really small, quiet, heartfelt moments of sincerity. Mm. I mean, I think he had a reputation for a while as not just being the transgressive director but the irony guy and everything yeah. was taking mm. the piss. And I don't think so. I think he's very sincere. Yeah. I mean, there is a scene in Twin Peaks that makes me tear up. There's a lot in Twin Peaks that makes me tear up. There is yeah, go on. The, se- the premiere episode of season two, which is one of my favourite ones, <laughs> yep. it's the Briggs scene. It's yeah. Major Briggs yep, yep, talking yep, yep, to yep. Bobby about the dream he had. Yeah. And it makes me tear up thinking about it. Like, it's... Yeah. So beautiful and just comes out of nowhere. The first half hour of Twin Peaks is just people not being told this horrific news but realising it through the way other people are responding and, and it is so orchestrated perfectly to have the most profound emotional impact possible. Mm. Lynch is capable of sincere and he's capable of sublime beauty as well. Yeah. I think he's always sincere. I, I, that's the thing. I think as much as people like to ascribe, oh, he's just making stuff up as he goes along, he's just this, he's just that, I think he means all of it. Well, I, I think, think so. What happened is he, he went very, he was a very early postmodern director. Like there's a lot of films which are kind of pastiches of classic genres. So Blue Velvet is his film noir slash teenage delinquent film. Yes. And, yeah, and Blue Velvet really, I think, is the definitive Lynch film in many ways. I think it's perfect. Yeah, I think I it's perfect. It's, it's definitely the next masterpiece. Yeah, um, I think so. I sort of very quickly say June has its moments. June? I think June is <laughs> kind of... And the production design is gorgeous. I think June is kind of a glorious clusterfuck. And it's also really Lynchian, like in terms of Paul Atreides' journey and sort of, you know, discovering this kind of path of the self and mm-hmm. finding, you know, finding the strength within and being kind of... It all taps into his whole transcendental meditation kind of point of view. And also the male character who has witnessed great violence done by other men against women starts to become a little bit dodgy and dark himself, mm-hmm. which is a theme you get in Twin Peaks, which is also a theme you get in Blue Velvet. There are, there are hints in Blue Velvet that the Jeffrey character is quite seduced by the Dennis Hopper character as well as being disgusted by him. Yeah. Mm. It's very much a reading of that as being an Oedipal film with, you know, oh. Jeffrey as the default child and, you know, Dennis Hopper is the symbolic father and Do- Dorothy is the symbolic mother who he wants to protect but he also craves and desires and but also there is the line of dialogue baby wants to fuck which I think <laughs> baby wants to fuck it's probably are you a the detective or a pervert <laughs> yeah yeah and you know, he's asked are you a detective or a pervert I mean yeah, of course yeah, the yeah. answer is he's both <laughs> <laughs> but you're speaking of underrated lynches I think Wild at Heart um, suffers because he's made I don't know, five or six masterpieces and yeah. this is a very very good film and so people don't tend to talk about it as much 
when it's uh, it, it was one of the early ones I watched. Um, Wild at Heart is this is another pastiche film. So you've got the um, uh, the film team thing in Blue Velvet. Twin Peaks is just a whole mass of the sitcom, the soap opera, science fiction, detective. I think Wild at Heart is very much the road movie slash. 50s epic film. He has this real love for Americana, but mm. also this really keen sense of where it's all gone wrong. Mm. And he's been quoted as saying at this point, it's like the 50s was such an amazing, hopeful time. It seemed like anything was possible in a time that hasn't been done since. But at the time, we also didn't realise the damage that we would end up wreaking. Well, that's why so many of his work has this kind of 50s iconography, but it's all about exploring the darkness underneath that no one's talking about, which is what Twin Peaks is all about. Mm. Wild at Heart has been criticised as being Lynch by numbers or Lynch doing Lynch. I was really, really curious to watch it again and remembering that it was made at the very, very start of the 90s. And I don't think anyone had seen anything quite like this before and how influential it was. Mm. It was pre-Tarantino Smith Rodriguez. And in his career, like watching everything in order... Lynch hadn't done anything like this before Exactly. Either. This was the first time he'd gone really nuts with the over-the-top yes. sex violence, the abject. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of... We see people having abortions. We see vomit sitting on hotel floors. It's really quite grotesque and in your face. Mm. My biggest feeling watching it now was how insanely dated it felt. It felt like such a 90s film. Mm. It didn't feel timeless to me like the rest of his stuff. And I struggled to connect with it on the second viewing because of that. Even though it contains some of my favourite sequences, the, the scene where Chris Isaac's playing on, on the soundtrack and they discover Cheryl and Fenn as the car crash victim mm. is one of the most heartbreakingly beautiful moments Lynch has ever pulled off. The fact that Nicolas Cage sings Elvis covers, I absolutely adore. <laughs> yeah. I only just realised I sing those Elvis songs to my nine-month-year-old <laughs> as a result of Wild at Heart because I love how Nicolas Cage does that in this film. I but yeah, this is this is sadly, as much as I have a lot of time for it and respect it, and I think it's, you know, this one, The Palm Door, it's a significant film, this is probably my least favourite Lynch film. Oh, right. Wild at Heart, yeah, which I know sounds sacrilegious to a lot of people because a lot of people hold it very close to their hearts, mm. but... But by saying it, I mean I really like it as yeah. opposed to I love it and want to marry it like I do with some <laughs> of his other films. <laughs> Well, yeah, he goes through a period after this because, you know, t Twin Peaks ends, he does Fire Walk With Me, the, the, I don't know, the sort of prequel that almost works better if you don't watch it <laughs> with Twin Peaks. I really dig this film. Yeah. This, yeah. Was, this was always, I think this is almost like his most underrated mm. uh, ab film. Yes, absolutely. Yep, there is something far. really, again, terrifying and primal, and it, it really digs into the themes that Twin Peaks always kind of hinted at. And an unflinching uh, fashion, but also a kind of hopeful ending as well. Look, the big paradox between Peaks Firewalk with me is you can you can only appreciate it if you detach it from the experience of Twin Peaks. Because yes. Twin Peaks is such a warm, lovely place to be in, despite all the horrors that are in yeah. some episodes. There's a real sense of community and warmth. Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me goes out of its way to distance you from that. The whole bit at the start is an inverse of the Twin Peaks world. I mean, the characters even drink bad coffee and are treated rudely by the, yeah. by the local police. It's designed to say to you, this is not Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. And yet the only way to really make sense of it is to have seen... Twin, Twin Peaks. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so a film that didn't do well all the time, but I, on and constant re-evaluation, I think it's one of his best. Like, I, I, not only is it one of his most underrated films, I think it's one of his best. I think this is an astonishing work. And I think it's the work where he does his most important stuff with that kind of shadow image projected, you know, evil version of the self. The way they use Bob in this film to represent the violence of men... Mm. 
actually taps into a lot of very serious uh, psychological study about what it's like to be a perpetrator of violence and a victim of extreme violence, especially sexual violence within the family, which is these people who are victims and even perpetrators have such trouble comprehending the reality of what's going on, literally imagine their attacker or themselves as a different figure. Yeah. And Twin Peaks toyed with this idea before it got a little bit too... The supernatural element got a little bit too literal in the second series, mm. but in Firewalk With Me, they really work it. And I've heard... You know, I've read case studies and reports of people who are actually had horrible experiences in the home from family violence, saying this film tapped into a core experience and terror that they found represented their own experiences. Yeah, I, I think heard, it's a remarkable film. Mm. I heard Lynch got letters from girls who had suffered abuse, yeah. uh, parental abuse, and saying, how did you know? Yeah. yeah, Which is incredible. The way I've, I've kind of began to tap into Lynch's stuff and the way these films really appeal to me, I kind of let them wash over me and kind of work through me. And rather than really break them down and dig in, I usually hook onto one concept that what they are for me. And it's usually a, a simplistic kind of thing. But for me, this film is all about trying to understand what we know as evil. And that film is grappling and not necessarily answering, but the film Firewalk With Me, the whole film is grappling with this idea yeah. of what evil is. Yeah, this idea of disassociation literally projecting it as a different person doing these acts. And that's what the film does. Mm. And it doesn't shy away from filling us with the absolute horror of the situation. I mean, Lynch has been accused in the past of maybe being a little bit too cool and even sexual with the way he presents violence. I, I disagree with all of that. I think this film is designed to make us feel very uneasy and upset. So from there, he spends a lot of the 90s making short films. And television as well. He tried to get a few shows up. Yeah, on the, the Air. Was on the Air was yeah. a sitcom. That he had a bad run, basically. Yeah, yeah, there was a documentary series called American Chronicles where him, he and Mark Frost produced, um, where they sort of, like, everyday American stories, which is weirdly something he would come back to about a decade and a half later yeah. for the Interview Project, which was a project his son did for the web mm. that Lynch produced. There was just interviews with ordinary Americans. And there was also another show for HBO, a miniseries called Hotel Room, which was based in the same hotel room over three different time periods. But none of these caught fire like Twin mm. Peaks did, and then eventually he returned to features. And made a film every two years for a period. He did Lost Highway in 97, Straight Story in 99, Mulholland Drive in 2001. It really felt like there was this momentum behind him. And then, you know, spent the next few years making shorts and Sort of and making, developing his website. Developing yeah. his website well, he and making the internet. Inland Empire in 2006, which is to date his last film. But this is such but, a crazy period of... And know, it's, all, it's also a shift in storytelling as well. It's mm. also he begins to, becoming more surreal. He begins kind of de you know, delving well, he, more into this mirror state. He of, runs further with that idea of emotions and ideas and parts of our personality being fragmented as different characters. To the point where Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire almost feel like a loose trilogy. Yeah, well, I think it's been described as his LA trilogy, and, mm. but, but yeah. it's more the trilogy of split personalities. That's not, that's not the right terminology. I don't want to offend anybody. But, um, but yeah, the idea of the self being literally depicted as a different person depending on the state it's in. Mm. My reading of Lost Highway is, and this is <laughs> based on the work of Jacques Lacan. Um, <laughs> this is based on an essay I wrote, yeah, many, many years ago. I can't even remember it or understand it. But the basic idea is we have the man, Fred Madison, played by Bill Pullman, is the character who exists for us in the real world. It's what Lacan would refer to as the symbolic, which is how we, we understand the world around us because we've able to label it as certain things. Okay. <laughs> the other version of the world is the imaginary, our, what we 
desire, what we project. In Lost Highway, when Fred transforms into the Balthazar Getty character, who's named Pete Dayton, that's when he goes into the imaginary. So this man who's with all these hang-ups suddenly becomes this young guy who can pull any woman he wants. He's very virile. All these paranoias about his... Gets more pussy than the toilet seat. Such, <laughs> such a gloriously revolting line. <laughs> all his paranoia about his wife is true mm. in his imaginary world. He's able right. to justify that. Mm. Then the final element is what... Gee, there's going to be like the two, two people in the world who understand Lacan are probably furious at me right now. Then there's the third idea, which is what is known as the real. And this is the concept that exists in the world that we haven't put labels on because we don't understand it properly, but it exists. And for me, it kind of taps into these, these dark desires that we haven't quite understood, such as the desire to murder or, or to kill your wife because you suspect she's having an affair on somebody. And I think this is what the mystery man represents, this unknown factor, this, this violence that's actually within Fred that he can't accept is real. So that's another part of who I think Fred is, this violent force who manipulates events so things play out the way that they do. Wow. I think. <laughs> For a film that came out at the time to be really befuddling and everyone was like, whoa, what does this mean? How do we interpret it now? Watching it again actually felt quite... Linear? Not, not literal, but yeah, I didn't. it seemed like, oh, well, of course, that's referring to that. Or that character <laughs> is the mirror of that. I actually yeah. found it a really straightforward film. And for a film I used to love dearly, I feel bizarrely distanced from it now. And I wonder if this is a really rare occasion of I have analyse this damn thing to death that I've kind of detached myself from it. And here's the thing. At the end, when he's changing again, if he changes into Pete Dayton again, he's fucked because there's Pete Dayton's prints are all over the last murder scene. Does he change into a third person? See, in the end, he's just sitting in the police cell. You reckon? The whole second half of the film is him in his cell imagining how things went or could have gone. Well, then, yeah, then the straight story, which I think as we've discussed yeah. is... Mm. Is beautiful. Yeah, really just charming, lovely film that I think shows us how much Lynch does love these people from yeah. the Midwest, these very traditional Americana-type people, these old-fashioned values. I mean, I can't imagine any other film where that whole bit about family and, you know, the, the bundle of sticks kind mm, of little yeah, story yeah, would go could over. possibly work, yeah. and it shouldn't work almost. No. It's so corny, but it's so lovely in this film and such beautiful acting. And, and I love that Harry Dean Stanton is in the film for, what, a second, and he almost steals the entire yeah, film yeah. with Just almost not saying a word of dialogue. That eloquence. And then Mulholland Drive, which is in 2001, which began as a 1999 TV pilot, mm. which was not taken up and then was reworked as a feature film. A year um, later, apparently. Mm, um, with some French financing. There's only about three or four scenes cut out that, that are in the TV pilot that aren't in the movie. Mm -hmm. And there's stuff in the film that you would think was cut out of the TV pilot but was actually added for the film. This was a film I, I've always had trouble connecting with, but this time I just really fell for it. I felt shattered at the end. It's well, I've seen broken. Rewatching all these films, my enthusiasm for Wild at Heart did wane, and my enthusiasm for Lost Highway ever so slightly waned, but I had the opposite experience with my Holland Drive. I fell for this big time yeah. rewatching this film. I think it's a really immaculate perfect film. Wow. Uh, I think it's probably the definitive film from this later part of his mm. career. It's interesting having these uh, reactions to, like, different reactions re-watching the works because I think my reactions to all the films stayed the same. It just sort of intensified as I re-watched them, except for Inland Empire, 
which I have to say I hated the first time I saw it, like really hated. And the second time, I think with the benefit of the years to think about it, re-watching it, I really love it now. I think my expectations were in a completely different place. I wasn't used to this type of raw filmmaking from Lynch. And re-watching it now, there's so much in there that is just extraordinary. And even if it is three hours and maybe doesn't always need to be, it's still, it still it blew me away on the second watch. I Yeah, look, this is another one where my feelings for it went slightly down a notch. Mm -hmm. It's the third time I saw it, and I literally watched it this morning. It was the last thing to do <laughs> before I got myself over here. But um, I first saw it in a cinema and f had reservations. Then mm. I watched it on my, on my laptop when I was living abroad, and that's all I could do, and actually really liked it then. Mm. And this morning I watched it on an HD TV and I liked it a little bit less. Even though I like I think, three different formats. Well, I think a lot of the reason is it's so butt ugly. It's shot on standard definition digital and mm. a, the resolution quality is terrible. Which he likes. I know he was experimenting with that. And, but, but like many of these very early digital films, probably with the exception of Thomas Vinterberg's Festen, mm. <laughs> most of these early digital experiments, I think, look unreasonably ugly and I struggle with that even though I quite like what digital has done in terms of new camera angles stuff you can do with focus and lighting and we see that in Inland Empire mm. but yeah it's a bit unwieldy um, it's the only Lynch film I can't wrap my head around I can't give you an explanation for what goes on in it like I did with Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive mm. but I do feel like it could do with a wonderful prune I think there's way too much stuff stuff yeah, in there, and yeah. I think there's points that come close to self-parody. Really? Having said that, the closing credits is one of the best things he's ever directed. Yes. It's a very Leos Carax, isn't it? Very kind of yeah, bit. it is. Yeah. I thought of him, actually. I thought of yeah. Holly Motors a little bit watching this. I mean, and maybe that's why I love the film as much as I do, to the extent that I do, because the final scene over the closing credits filled me with such joy, and I actually get quite emotional at those yeah. credits. But somebody described the film as... Uh, the most unfettered view we have inside Lynch's head, and sort of gave me a, you know, and back when I hated the film, I thought, well, maybe that's why it's good we have financiers and people looking over your shoulder and you know restrictions. And I, I guess I still sort of think that you know, given how much I love Lost Highway, but I think there's something so interesting about yeah, as you say, digital allowing us to get inside his head in, mm. in sort of the most direct way possible. I just found I, I couldn't be more of a 180 from when I first saw it. I, I saw this at MIF. I was with you, Lee. Yeah. And I thought it was my worst film of the year. I was <laughs> oh, like, wow. I loathed it. Yeah. Oh, what the fuck? You're just wasting our time. Now, I, I, I watched it yesterday and I found it profoundly terrifying. Mm -hmm. And found it just of all of, uh, all of his films I've watched over this last month, it's the one that just really unsettled me. Yeah, sure, it could be shorter, but I kind of didn't want it to end. I just kind of wanted this to keep going. Yeah, look, I, I really like it, but it's just, mm. it's, it's still, it's just, it's, it's the one of all these films that keeps me ever so slightly at arm's length. I find it quite impenetrable, but um, I prefer Lynch with restrictions. Well, and he speaks about how he believes there should not be any restrictions on the filmmaker, but, you know, Mulholland Drive was made under some crazy restrictions, yeah. and it's astonishing. And the thing with uh, Inland Empire, too, he talks about, um, in his book, Catching the Big Fish, he talks about his whole approach with transcendental meditation and the, and the concept of the unified field, that everything in the world, and, like, quantum physics backs this up, that everything in the world is connected. Mm. 
And his whole thing with Inland Empire, making it over two and a half years, there was no script. He just kind of got ideas and kept shooting these kind of random things and then hoping that, like, somewhere within this unified field, they'd all be connected somehow. Well, he cannibalised his own website, too. He plucked out mm. stuff from that. Yeah. And, and originally rabbits, shot... which I love. Yes. Mm. Oh, rabbits, Jesus. And that's the thing. It all started with a monologue he shot with Laura Dern for the internet. And then thought, oh, this is too good for the internet. This should be a feature film. And then from there, just started adding things and then eventually finding connections. And so it's sort of this kind of unified field filmmaking, which yeah. I just find fascinating. I like that. But you compare that to Eraserhead as well. Like, I think, funnily enough, Inland Empire seems to be taking us right back to where he began with Eraserhead. It's a perfect full circle. It is if a perfect full circle. Film again, it's kind of poetic. It is quite poetic. But with Eraserhead, he had the restraint of shooting on films. Even if there was a sense of him making it up at the... At as he went along, made over a huge period of time, he had those very serious restrictions about mm. only film what's really, really necessary because this is expensive and time-consuming. Inland Empire feels like he's been left to run wild a little bit too much. And also, it's also not... T it's also telling that Eraserhead is by far his shortest film and Inland Empire by far his longest. Well, he will be getting these restrictions back because his next project is going to be the return to Twin Peaks, which will be very interesting to see how that... I'm just out. quietly, deliriously hopeful. Yeah. But for now, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for returning. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad it was happening again. <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you in 25 years. I think my fear is gone. I think I'm happy. I'm happy.